ಬಂದಿದೆ ಬಂದಿದೆ ಹಿರಿಯರ ವಾಣಿ ಹಿರಿಯರೇ ಇತರ ರಾಜಾರಾಣಿ ಹತ್ತೋಣ ನಾವು ಅವರ ನೆನಪಿನ ದೋಣಿ ಕೇಳುತ್ತಾ ಖುಷಿ ಪಡೋಣ ಹಿರಿಯರ ವಾಣಿ ಕೇಳ್ತಾನೆ ಖುಷಿ ಪಡೋಣ ಹಿರಿಯರ ವಾಣಿ ಕೇಳ್ತಾನೆ ಖುಷಿ ಪಡೋಣ ಹಿರಿಯರ ವಾಣಿ ಇದು ಹಿರಿಯರ ಕತೆ ಹಿರಿಯರ ಜೊತೆ ನಿಮ್ಮ ಹಿರಿಯರ ವಾಣಿಯಲ್ಲಿ ಕೇಳ್ತಾನೆ ಇರಿ ಖುಷಿಯಾಗಿರಿ ಹಲೋ ಲಿಸ್ನರ್ಸ್ ದಿಸ್ ಈಸ್ ಯುವರ್ ಆರ್ ಜೆ ಚಂದನ ಆ್ಯಂಡ್ ಐ ವೆಲ್ಕಮ್ ಯು ಆಲ್ ಟು ಅನುಭವ್ ಅ ಜಾಯಿಂಟ್ ಪ್ರಾಜೆಕ್ಟ್ ಆಫ್ ನ್ಯಾಷನಲ್ ಇನ್ಸ್ಟಿಟ್ಯೂಟ್ ಆಫ್ ಸೋಷಿಯಲ್ ಡಿಫೆನ್ಸ್ ಮಿನಿಸ್ಟ್ರಿ ಆಫ್ ಸೋಷಿಯಲ್ ಜಸ್ಟೀಸ್ ಆ್ಯಂಡ್ ಎಂಪವರ್ಮೆಂಟ್ ಗೌರ್ಮೆಂಟ್ ಆಫ್ ಇಂಡಿಯಾ ಆ್ಯಂಡ್ ಮೀಡಿಯಾ ಫಾರ್ ಕಮ್ಯುನಿಟಿ ಫೌಂಡೇಶನ್ ಇಂಪ್ಲಿಮೆಂಟೆಡ್ ಬೈ ನೈಟಿಂಗೇಲ್ಸ್ ಮೆಡಿಕಲ್ ಟ್ರಸ್ಟ್ ಪ್ರಾಜೆಕ್ಟ್ ಕನ್ಸ್ಯೂಡ್ ಬೈ ಡಾಕ್ಟರ್ ಆರ್ ಶ್ರೀಧರ್ ಪ್ರಾಜೆಕ್ಟ್ ಇನ್ವೆಸ್ಟಿಗೇಟರ್ ಅಲೋಕ್ ವರ್ಮಾ ಕೋಆರ್ಡಿನೇಟರ್ಸ್ ಪೂಜಾ ಮುರಡಾ ಸಾಯಿ ಸುಧಾ ಕೌಶಲ್ಯ ಗೌರ್ಮೆಂಟ್ ಆಫ್ ಇಂಡಿಯಾ ಹ್ಯಾಸ್ ಇನಿಷಿಯೇಟೆಡ್ ಆ್ಯಂಡ್ ಎಲ್ಡರ್ ಲೈನ್ ಟೋಲ್ ಫ್ರೀ ನಂಬರ್ ಒನ್ ಫೋರ್ ಫೈವ್ ಸಿಕ್ಸ್ ಸೆವೆನ್ ಎಲ್ಡರ್ಸ್ ಆರ್ ಎನಿ ಒನ್ ಆನ್ ಬಿಹಾಫ್ ಆಫ್ ಎಲ್ಡರ್ಸ್ ಕೆನ್ ಕಾಲ್ ಬಿಟ್ವೀನ್ ಮಾರ್ನಿಂಗ್ ಏಟ್ ಎ ಎಮ್ ಟು ಏಟ್ ಪಿ ಎಮ್ ಫಾರ್ ಎನಿ ಕ್ವೆಶನ್ಸ್ ಕ್ವೈರೀಸ್ ಆ್ಯಂಡ್ ಸಪೋರ್ಟ್ ಟು ಎಲ್ಡರ್ಲಿ ಬೆಂಗಳೂರು ಬ್ಯಾಂಗ್ಲೋರ್ ಟೇಲ್ ಆಫ್ ಟೂ ಸಿಟೀಸ್ ಆಸ್ ಉಶಾಂತಿ ಸೈಡ್ ಐ ಎಮ್ ಅ ಥರ್ಡ್ ಜನರೇಷನ್ ಬ್ಯಾಂಗ್ಲೋರಿಯನ್ ಐ ತಿಂಕ್ ಒನ್ ಆಫ್ ದ ರೇರ್ ಸ್ಪೀಷೀಸ್ ಹೂಸ್ ಬಿನ್ ಫಾರ್ ತ್ರೀ ಜನರೇಷನ್ಸ್ ಆಫ್ ಫ್ಯಾಮಿಲಿ ಹೆಸ್ ಬಿನ್ ಇನ್ ಬ್ಯಾಂಗ್ಲೋರ್ ಬಿಕಾಸ್ ಯು ನೋ ಆಸ್ ಉಶಾಂತಿ ಸೈಡ್ ಐ ಮೋಸ್ಟ್ಲಿ ಟೇಕ್ ಚಿಲ್ಡ್ರನ್ ಆನ್ ವಾಕ್ಸ್ ಹೆರಿಟೇಜ್ ವಾಕ್ಸ್ ಅರೌಂಡ್ ಬ್ಯಾಂಗ್ಲೋರ್ ಆ್ಯಂಡ್ ದ ಫಸ್ಟ್ ಕ್ವೆಶನ್ ಐ ಆಸ್ಕ್ ದೆಮ್ ಟು ಸಾರ್ಟ್ ಆಫ್ ಇಂಪ್ರೆಸ್ ಅಪಾನ್ ದೆಮ್ ದ ಯುನೀಕ್ನೆಸ್ ಆಫ್ ಬ್ಯಾಂಗ್ಲೋರ್ ಇಸ್ ಐ ಆಸ್ಕ್ ದೆಮ್ ಹೌ ಮೆನಿ ಆಫ್ ಯು ವರ್ ಬಾರ್ನ್ ಇನ್ ಬ್ಯಾಂಗ್ಲೋರ್ ಸೊ ಅ ಫ್ಯೂ ಹ್ಯಾಂಡ್ಸ್ ಗೋ ಅಪ್ ಐ ಮೀನ್ ಕ್ವೈಟ್ ಅ ಫ್ಯೂ ಪರ್ಹ್ಯಾಪ್ಸ್ and then i say how many of your parents were born in bangalore and far far fewer hands go up and since every class class is a microcosm of the city itself i use that as an example to show them that really bangalore was and continues to be a city of immigrants who once they arrive here are so taken by the charms of this beautiful city that they rarely ever leave so they come to study perhaps because this is a city of many many educational institutions colleges so of, of good of good quality so people come from all over to study in these colleges here or they may come uh, to work here because once again if in ancient times uh, during the times of the spice route and the silk route if delhi was sort of the gateway into india and then later when in the 15th century when vasco da gama found the sea route or even before that when the arabs were trading with us then bombay was sort of the gateway into india but since the 20th century since the last few years last decade of the 20th century i think we can safely say bangalore is the gateway into india it has where it is where all the young people are it is where all where all the excitement is where all the unicorns are you know unicorn right they are the 100 million dollar companies and they're all operating out of koramangala and indranagar and this is a city of entrepreneurship this is a city of sunrise industry whether it was the call center thing that happened maybe 20 years ago or the biotech industry or the it industry all of it is happening here so this is definitely the new gateway into india and i try to tell the children that you know so your parents came here and they they loved the city so much that they never left and then now it's them who complain about the traffic but we don't we, it's very clear where the traffic comes from right it didn't happen overnight it happened because uh, people have come in and made this wonderful city their home i mean so it's a double edged sword being born and being inheritor to a wonderful city because it means that it's always under threat by everybody else who finds it wonderful and wants to come and make it their home so you have to in your heart keep it welcoming enough to allow people to come in and enrich your city but also retain your own pride in your city and make sure that it doesn't lose its most central character of being warm and welcoming so it's a huge responsibility on the citizens of bangalore and uh, i'm glad and i how I, i think many of you are old bangaloreans would it be safe to say that would you just raise your hands for me if old bangalorean means you have lived here for at least 30 years perhaps so yeah most of you that's wonderful and as you know we are on the cusp of yet another assembly election and uh, that's going to happen very soon and one of you just said that you're coming back just in time to vote that's wonderful <clears throat> and uh, anybody who has voted in karnataka for more than 3 4 elections 
knows that yeah veena yeah so we know that basically any any basic manual about voting in karnataka or how the caste divisions unfold how the voting goes it's never complete without mentioning the lingayats and the vokkaligars they are the large caste uh, groups in, in in karnataka and it's very clear almost like how they vote and it's all the congress stronghold has been of course the old mysore region of which bangalore is a part and here is here is where the vokkaligars are dominant whether you take the and north karnataka is where the lingayats are dominant so the vokkaligars usually have the surname gowda they are landowners they are peasants and of course the story of bangalore also starts with a gowda and his name was kempe gowda and of course we have made it in the last year or two i we have gone a little crazy i think and we have kempe gowda everywhere all over the city including a gigantic statue at uh, the kempe gowda international airport as soon as you come in you know you have this huge statue and of course recently to pacify both groups uh before the assembly elections two new statues were unveiled in front of the vidhan sabha one was both were equestrian statues one was of kempe gowda of course because he can't be left out of anything but to to uh, pacify the other group the other was of the 12th century poet philosopher saint vasavanna of the lingayats who's also on a horse so both these new statues have been added to the bangalore landscape recently now why do we call why am i calling it a tale of two cities because there were two cities bengaluru and bangalore very very distinct in character of course if you just for an outsider it looks like well it used to be called bengaluru then it became called then it began to be called bangalore and now it's called bengaluru again it's the same city right but no there's there's a huge undercurrent of history and lots of politics and lots of uh, people behind the bengaluru bangalore bengaluru transition and it's never been the same place that was called all these names now it is okay so i had promised to start with how old is bangalore what do you think uh, any guesses uh, mr shastri 400 years old are you do you mean to say 400 and something 400 odd years old okay anybody else wants to hazard a guess how old is bangalore i can't see people in the next screen actually so if there is somebody there around 600 about 6 how much 600 600 years old okay okay so anybody else has ajaya ajaya you want to see 750 750 okay that's what i feel okay so the thing is that when people come into bangalore to visit bangalore uh people usually think of bangalore as a young city and bangaloreans themselves think of their city as a young city because you know the problem we have as bangaloreans when we have people visiting us from other cities we are like okay what should i see in bangalore and then we are like uh lalbagh kabanbagh uh vidhan sabha then we are out of ideas because we have no clue what to show them after that because bangalore is not a sightseeing city in the regular sense that it is uh, that that a sightseeing city is usually delhi or bombay calcutta there's so much historical buildings delhi has old old forts the mughal um, monuments and everything to show but in bangalore we don't have any monuments of that kind we don't have historical monuments so we're always feeling a, at a bit of a loss and therefore we think of bangalore as ah it's just a young city you know we don't have all that history and not only for that reason but because bangalore has a young vibe i don't know how to explain it but anybody who comes to bangalore feels sort of there are a lot of young people everywhere there very rarely do you see a lot of old people there is very little visible poverty so it feels as if bangalore is a very middle class educated town everybody has some kind of decent standard of living there's a lot of youthful energy the kinds of establishments whether it's food and beverage or whatever are pubs and you know and then all these new entrepreneurs are coming out of here it's very with it as far as tech and everything is concerned so we all tend to think of bangalore as a very young city but like mr shastri said and like you all said like usha said and jayanti said these it is actually 
a very old city. And we as Bangaloreans are not aware of it at all. So Mr. Shastri was closest to the official age of the official Bengaluru, uh, which came up in 1537. It was set up by uh, Mr. Kempegora, Kempegora the first. And this happened in 1537, which means in another, what, uh, 14 years, Bangalore will be 500 years old. We'll be celebrating our 500th anniversary, yeah. so uh, 500th birthday. So that, that's quite amazing. That is already quite old for a city, 500 years. But that is only the official age of the city. Because if you, uh, what so in the end, of the, the end of the 19th century, there was a gentleman called um, Benjamin Lewis Rice, B.L. Rice. And he was an educationist. He was an inspector of education. He was a British person, but he had grown up in Bangalore. His father, the Reverend Rice, uh, ha had set up a church and schools and everything in the old city area. And if you are familiar with Avenue Road, if yes, you're walking into Avenue Road from the State Bank of Mysore side, on the uh, right-hand side, right side yes. you will see the Rice Memorial Church. It, it's still flourishing. You know, It's a beautiful little building, uh, the Rice Memorial Church. That was where the elder Mr. Rice, the senior Rice, was a pastor. And his son, B.L. Rice, Benjamin, he grew up in Bangalore, was, spoke Kannada fluently and uh, was very much a fan of Kannada and Karnataka. And he became inspector of education and he used to travel around the state, you know, visiting schools. And, and during that time, he got very, very interested in epigraphs, inscriptions on stone that he saw all over the place. And he realized that nobody had bothered to interpret them or document them. And, you know, the British... They have a great love of documenting everything, which we as Indians do not have. We are so um, happy to leave everything vague because we realize everything is very, very old. That stuff repeats. That history is not linear in our minds because of our understanding of life as samsara, reincarnation. You know, everything is time is cyclical to us because we take our cues from nature, like all ancient civilizations. We look at nature, we say, you know, in the spring, the flowers come and then in the fall, the leaves fall and then we wait and it looks as if the as if the tree is dead. And then once again, it rejuvenates itself. So we have our idea of time is cyclical, whereas in the West, in Christian theology and everything, it is linear. It starts with the day of creation. It ends with Armageddon. So it's, it's sort of like a linear journey. So we think of it as a, a thing and we don't see any point, therefore, in documenting stuff that went in the past because we believe it will go, it will come again. You know, there's nothing to hold on to. So we don't document so much. Anyway, this doc, this Mr. Rice, he began to <clears throat> document every epigraph that he saw. He got pundits and scholars in Hale Kannada to come and interpret it, work on it and started documenting all the uh, inscription stones that he saw. And he, he, he documented something like 7,000 inscription stones across Karnataka. And he brought them all, he collected them all and put them in two volumes called Epigraphia Karnataka. Okay. And while he was doing that research, near in a temple in Begur, Begur is near uh, uh, Silk Board, that, that infamous Silk Board junction full of traffic there. Somewhere there near Electronic City is this town of Begur, is an old settlement of Begur. And in a temple there, he found an epigraph that mentioned Bengaluru, a town called Bengaluru. Now, the interesting thing is that inscription stone was dated to 9th century BC, which pushes back Bengaluru's age by another 600 years. I forgot to tell you, which will make my story less dramatic, but I forgot to tell you one more thing in between. <laughs> in between, what happened was, I'm sure all of you know the other wonderful story about the founding of Bengaluru or the name, how the name Bengaluru came, the town, Bendakaluru. So those who are not familiar with that story, it dates back to the Hoysala King, Virabalala II. And that was in the 11th century. And the story goes that Virabalala set out for a hunting trip as usual into the forest. And uh, he started chasing after a deer or something and got completely separated from his companions. And like all kings were, he was completely not carrying any food or water or a GPS, nothing. So he was completely lost without his minions. And night began to fall. He began to get very hungry, getting a little desperate. The sounds of the wild animals were getting louder. And he's like, I have to find a place to rest for the night. And when he started scanning the forest a little desperately, 
he saw a light in the distance and he said, ah, if there is a light, that means there is habitation. Humans are there. So he rode like the wind towards the light and, you know, pushing his poor, tired nag and got there and found that the little flickering light was the cooking fire of a little old woman who was cooking her evening meal, a very, very frugal evening meal of beans, boiled beans. And of course, kings are not used to waiting. They're not used to being patient. So he just fell at her feet and threw an almighty tantrum and said, I just need to eat or I will die, mother. Please give me something to eat. And of course, this old woman had no idea who he was because there was, you know, in those days, you never saw your king really. You very rarely knew what he looked like. You even heard that your kingdom had been taken over maybe three months later after the war had happened somewhere far away and the news trickled down to you. She had no idea who he was, but just out of the generosity of her heart, she shared her meal of boiled beans with him. And the king was well pleased and went off to sleep. And the next morning, the king's people came looking for him. And he was, and they were like, oh, they were all falling at his feet and saying, your majesty, your majesty. And the old woman was, oh my God, this is the king of the land. I had no idea. And the king said, okay, thank you. And I'm going. But, you know, before he went away, he said, I must do some appropriately kingly thing. I have to leave my mark on this place. And he said, to commemorate in honor of the generosity of this little old woman who shared her evening meal with me, this town shall henceforth be called the town of boiled beans, Ben the Karluru. And off he went. And the people of the state of the town must have said, why? We had a perfectly good name. Now this king comes, calls us something else. Now we have to practice this new name. And they went on Ben the Karluru, Ben the Karluru. And it was worn, worn, worn down by so many tongues repeating it that it eventually became Bengaluru. So that story dates from the 11th century. So the 16th century Kempegowda story has already been pushed back by four centuries to the 11th century Virabhadra. But B.L. Rice finding that inscription stone pushed it back further by another 200 years to the 9th century BC. Then, um, here's an interesting story. So this is quite a new development, maybe in the last two or three years. So there is a gentleman called Uday Kumar. He's an engineer, software engineer. Who isn't in Bangalore? But anyway, he's a software engineer. And he was, uh, he had, he grew up in Rajajinagar. And somebody told him, did you know Rajajinagar was called something else in the old days? And he said, no. And he felt very stupid that, you know, we're all, we all live here in this city and know nothing of its history. We will tell you World War II history. We will rattle off names like that. But our own neighborhoods, neither do our children know. And we can't even blame them anymore because we don't know it ourselves. We have no interest in finding out. So he decided to start exploring his own neighborhood and then uh, it was uh, covid time and all that and they had cycles he needed to he said i you know i'm working from home i need, i want to go cycling for exercise and to just make it interesting for himself he and a couple of friends got together they got rice's epigraphia karnataka and they said why don't we ride to these places where these stones are supposed to be these inscription stones and see how many of them are still there and when they took on this as a project, they realized to their horror that a lot of them were missing those old stones or they had become used as paving, part of the pavement, or they were lying in some ditch somewhere. Nobody realized the value of that stone or what the inscription on it said. So off Uday Kumar went to the mythic society, asked for a grant, you know, spoke to people there, got a big grant, took a three-year sabbatical from work. And now what he does the whole time is 3D imaging of all these old inscriptions so that they are preserved for posterity. Even if the actual stone cannot, he's also taking the stone and installing them in little mantapas and making sure the people of the neighborhood know what it is and they take some responsibility for it. That also he's doing. But he's also 3D imaging them so that, you know, they're not lost ever for anyone. And during this research, they came across a epigraphic a stone which Mr. Rice had not found, okay, had not documented. And on that, uh, there is a story, it's a Viragallu, means there is a story of a great hero of the place. That's usually what this, either the inscription stones recorded, um, donations made by uh, different people or whatever to the temple or to the king or something, or they recorded some heroic deed done by a person of that neighborhood. And they found the story of a man called Kittaya, who from the Ganga dynasty, who had held off some enemy and died in the battle. So that was the story of Kittaya. And 
the Kitaya story is uh, it said had happened in a place called Perbola. And in Hale Kannada, Pedda like or meant big, like how it does in Telugu now, you know, big. Now we say Hiriya, but that time it used. So Perbola was which town, which neighborhood do you think? Hebbal. So Hebbal was mentioned in this stone, and it was dated to the seventh century. So although Bengaluru as a town may come have come later, this this neighborhood of Bangalore called Hebbal had existed well before that, which used to be a village or something. Now it has become absorbed in this big megapolis of Bangalore. But it it was a city in its own right or a village in its own right, which had its own heroes and, you know, Viragal lose its own wars, all that. And now there is another uh, copper plate inscription that has been found of the fifth century BCE, which mentions Begur again. So Begur is again become the oldest, you know, so sadly for all of us we have to say that bengaluru really started at silk board junction you know as far as we know <laughs> most most infamous traffic ridden site but that's where so maybe it's we have just it's in our genes to have a lot of traffic because it started there. anyway so that is the antiquity of bangalore and i will say watch this space because you know, I don't know how many of you know this, but uh, Roman coins from 27 BCE, that's 2050 years ago, have been found, had, were found when they were digging up the place to build HAL airport. So in, in places like Kormangalam, no, no, I mean in HAL airport and all, they have found Roman coins, which means this, whatever settlement was there, were trading with the Romans at that time. One minute, excuse me. I'm so sorry, some courier happened, I'm sorry. And my help did not know what to do. Anyway, so, and then if you go back even for the thousand BC, which is 3000 years before, they have found the burial sites in Kormangla, etc. So people have occupied this place for a very, very long time. And we like to think of it as a modern new city, which is fine. Uh, it, I, we love, we, I mean, that's what makes Bangalore so special. I think it has that very young vibe to it. Mm, and uh, anybody who comes here can feel it immediately. And we don't have that baggage of history. We don't hearken back, you know, like always to, oh, the good old days when Maharajas is nothing. We are like quite happy to be very much in tune with the future, with an eye on the future, not an eye on the past. And that's what makes us who we are. Anyway, so let's get to the official story though, Bengaluru, our Kempegowda, the Kempegowda the first. So he was a vassal of the Vijayanagara Empire, which was the largest and most powerful kingdom in the South, right? So he was a vassal of that empire. Before that, uh, ah, this is also an interesting thing which I have to tell you. So before the Vijayanagar people came, the Hoysalas, who we talked about, Virabhalala, they used to own part of this. And who did the Hoysalas beat? Who did they chase away from here to become masters of Bengaluru, of the Bengaluru region? Which dynasty do you think? And which particular king? Ponni in Selvan. Raja Raja Chola I used to rule Bangalore at that time. And the Cholas were ruling Bangalore. That's why we have a lot of Chola, Chola age temples. Temples, yeah. Yeah, we have a lot of Chola age temples, if you know. Uh, there is the uh, Chokanatha Swami temple in uh, Domlur. Domlur, yeah. yeah. Someshwara so, temple. Yeah, Someshwara temple in Alsur. Yeah. So these are all Chola style temples. So the Cholas used to rule us. And before that, it was the Rashtrakutas and the Kadambas and the Chalukyas and the Gangas. So the Ganga people had most of the control over Bangalore part. Then the Hoysalas, then the Cholas came, then the Hoysalas. And finally, the Hoysalas declined to coincide with the rise of Vijayanagara. And Bangalore became part of the Vijayanagara Empire. Now, of course, everybody knows Vijayanagara Empire. Everybody knows of Krishna Devaraya. But he was gone by 1529. He died in 1529. So his reign was over. And Kempegowda founded Bengaluru in 1537. So eight years later. So... 
who was the king in, in uh, Vijayanagara at that time? It was a man called Achutaraya, right? So Achutaraya uh, and Kempegowda was the far farthest reach of his kingdom, of the Vijayanagara kingdom. He was the ruler of a place called Yalahanka. Okay, so Kempegowda was the ruler of a place called Yalahanka, which is to the north of uh, central Bangalore today, um, as you know. And Yalahanka, uh, he was the he, he did what was the what was the role of chieftains, vassals who guarded the outposts of the kingdom, whose whose little kingdoms were at the outposts of the of the larger kingdom. Their role their role was to maintain an army for the service of the main king and also to send a regular tribute, an annual tribute to him. So our man Kempegowda was the chieftain in charge of Yalahanka. He did very well for his king in one of the battles, and as a reward, Achutaraya told him, ask me what you want and you can have it uh, because I want to thank you. And Kempegowda said, oh, you know what? I know exactly what I, what I want to ask for. I'm a, Yelanka is old. I'm a little bored of it. Can I have permission to build myself a new capital, please? And uh, our uh, Achutaraya said, okay, sure, go ahead, build yourself a new capital. But there is a condition. There is a little rider that I must add. And he said, yes, what is it? He said, whatever you build, you will only build a mud fort encircling it, not a stone fort. And he did this to secure his own safety, Achutaraya, because he said, if I allow him to build a stone fort around it, that will become defensible against my armies and I will not be able to, he'll, he'll probably break free, declare independence. So he said, only if you build a mud fort around it. And Kempegoda said, fine. And apparently he set out one hot day. Now, if you say it's a hot day, then we have to think a little about which month could it be because there are so few hot days in Bangalore. Uh, so it must have been March, April, something like that. So he set out from Yalhanka, started going south to identify a place to build himself a new capital. And imagine the times, okay? So the, this, this whole moniker of Bangalore, the garden city with all this lush vegetation, this wasn't the case in those days. Because if you think about it, and if you, if you drive in Bangalore a lot, you may not have realized, but if you've ever walked or cycled or gone running in Bangalore, you know that Bangalore is built on a series of hills. If you've gone in Mahalakshmi layout or uh, one of, near the Iskon temple, uh, it's always like, you know, huge hills everywhere. So we are built on a series of granite hills, actually. And granite hills are not the most, uh, you know, friendly for lush vegetation. So most of Bangalore's vegetation that we see and enjoy, and we call it the garden city, has been planted by hand. There were lush bits in the valleys in between the hills where the water collected, but most of it was just rocky land. And if you have ever wondered why our metro takes so long to build and why we have such few sections that are underground, this is the reason. If we have to build an underground metro in Bangalore, we have to tunnel through solid rock. And it's, a, it's already an engineering marvel, the amount we have built underground. The part near the Vidhan Soda and all, which we didn't want to despoil by putting, you know, an overground metro there. That took the longest time because we are digging through solid granite. And we have so much granite here that while it's considered to be such an expensive building material in other parts of the world, here we use large granite slabs to pave our pavements badly. So that everybody can trip over. No, it's never even <laughs> it's never even kept nicely. But now they're of course trying some different thing. Those interlinking blocks they're doing nowadays with the smart city or the whatever the uh, new thing is. Mm. Anyway, so we have a lot of granite. So we built on a series of granite hills, which are not which do not support much lush vegetation. So if Kempegowda was coming from Yalhanka to here in the absence of roads and uh, in the absence of trees and it was a hot day, he must have felt very tired pretty soon and then decided to take a little nap and some scrubby vegetation was there. He took a nap and but he was soon woken up uh, maybe an hour later by a scuffling in the bushes and being the king he was, he jumped to his feet in a second, drew the sword from his scabbard saying, who goes there? And when he took a closer look, he felt a little sheepish because it was just a little hare, a rabbit that's scuffling in the bushes. But the unusual thing as he kept watching was that the rabbit or the hare had turned around and was snarling at a pair of hounds who got so psyched by the 
sight of this aggressive rabbit that apparently they turned tail and ran howling for their lives. And Kempegora said, my God, this is Virabhumi. This is heroic ground. You know, it's an omen. It's a sign. It means if this, if rabbit could chase away the hounds, then maybe one day I, who am like the little scared rabbit, will be able to chase away Achutraya from Vijanagar and be independent. So he said, this is a sign and I'm going to build my city here. Okay, so that's the story. It's a nice story, but it's also a story that is repeated as a founding story of many empires, including Vijayanagara. Even Hakka and Bukka apparently came back and told Vidyaranya, their guru, that we saw a hare chasing away two hounds. So it's a, it's a story that repeats itself. And maybe that's why Kempegora let this story uh, spread, because it was the same story of founding of Vijayanagara. And he probably thought, aha, this is a sign that my country, mine will also grow. But the reason why he probably chose the place he did, which is the place he did choose to build his new city, the south of the Mysore Bank Circle, right? That whole town, that, which is Avenue Road, Chikpete, Dodpete, Akipete, Balepete, that was all built by Kempegoda in 1537. Let me try and show you a picture of the map of it. Uh, where is it? Where is it? One minute, hang on. Hmm. Oh, point. Now? Yes, yes, we can. Yeah, so this is the town. Okay, this is a map of the old town. And you can, that's all it was. I'll show you another picture so you can place it in the map of Bangalore today. So this is uh, how it used to look, but this is just the inside. It's a sort of a trapezoidal fort. And you will see that, can you see my cursor? Yes, yes, we can. So there, there was a double wall and the double wall was filled with these prickly soap nut bushes. Okay, to, to keep animals and things away and also to keep horses, soldiers, horses away. And uh, there were eight gates. Let me try and find the other picture for you. Yeah, so this is the pete. Okay, the same thing that we saw zoomed in is this. And this is a stone fort that came up later, not in Kempegoda's time. This was the actual bastion uh, where all the armory and everything used to be later, not in Kempegoda's time. So this, just this part is the 1537 part. And... Let me see. Huh. So now we can place it in Bangalore. This is the red thing which I have marked. That is the old, the mud fort and to the south of it, the stone fort, right? And if you go further up, this green part that you see is MG Road, Parade Ground. And this part that you see is the Raj Bhavan, where the Raj Bhavan is today. Okay, and if you see the numbers, that is the height above sea level of these places. So you can see that the highest points in Bangalore were the first ones to be built up. Obviously, when you live on a, a series of hills, you will want to build on the uh, high parts. Why? Because you don't, so that you don't get caught in like Bangalore floods like last year. <laughs> because they have, what they have done is they have taken over all the uh, lower parts, the new builders, and they've taken over lake beds. Now, Kempegoda builds his town, and basically he chooses to build it there because of the height. If you build on a hill, what's the advantage of building on a hill? You have a good view of the surroundings. You can see when the enemy is coming, right? And you're spared the water flooding in, etc. during the rains. So, and big because we were built on a series, we didn't have, we don't have a river in Bangalore. Most cities were built on the banks of rivers, old cities, right? But Kempegada chose to build it here where there was no river in sight. But there's no river, ocean is very far away. The only reason, uh, but there was a lot of water here. How come? How was there a lot of water here? Because wherever the land dipped naturally, the rainwater would go down and collect and become water. a natural... 
pond or lake. So natural rainwater harvest. So many, many, many little lakes and ponds. And Kempegara took advantage of it and constructed tanks instead of so that they, that water would stay there. It wouldn't it wouldn't run off or evaporate soon enough. And one of the tanks he built was the Alsur tank. It's actually we call it Alsur Lake, but the correct name for it is Alsur Tank because it was built man-made. And if you think about how you get to Alsur Lake from MG Road, say, do you can you imagine that? Do you go down or up from MG Road to reach the Alsur Lake near the Gurdwara? Down. So you have to go down. So Alsur Lake is one of the lowest points in the city. And race course, where the Raj Bhavan is, is one of the highest points. And you will know that it's one of the highest points because what is the name of that locality where Raj Bhavan is? Yeah, it's called the High Point. And uh, also there's a tank road. Not uh, High Point. It's called... High ground. High, high ground. ground. High ground. So that was called high grounds for a reason. Anyway, so our Kempegata builds this. <clears throat> and uh, he has this full city all built up. It's wonderful. It's lovely. Also, remember that if you imagine a map of India in your head and you draw a line bisecting the country from north to south, and then you just took the southern peninsula and you drew another line bisecting it from east to west, the point of intersection between these two lines is Bangalore. Wow. Bangalore is bang in the center of the southern peninsula. And it's on the main north-south line of India itself, which means uh, it's also equidistant from both the coasts. If you draw a straight line, if you, if you go east, proceeding east from Bangalore, you'll hit Madras. Proceeding west from Bangalore, you hit Mangalore. So we are all in a straight line, which made Bangalore a very strategic location for trade. So trade in the, in the era before steamships and uh, before uh, petrol, uh, diesel engines were invented, sailboats used to only be able to make short journeys. And these short journeys from Arabia to the west coast of India, and then they would cross over by land, go to the east and travel further uh, east, you know, from there. And what was being traded mostly at that time, 14th, 15th centuries, when our uh, Kempegoda was building Bangalore, what was being traded pepper pepper spices spices the spice route basically it was it was very very vibrant and most of the spices came from the east of uh, you know the malayan arab archipelago and all those kinds of places sri lanka gave all the cinnamon and mm -hmm. of course our malabar coast was rich with pepper, pepper. The black gold and that used to travel a lot so bangalore was very strategically positioned even for that. It was right in the center. So Kempegoda builds his town and then he discovers that, huh, slight technical issue. There isn't enough of a local population to populate my town. <laughs> so like any real estate developer today, like a Shoba or a, you know, Raheja or whoever, Prestige, Prestige, he advertises. He has to advertise. He's saying, well, I have a new town all built and ready. Uh, will you come and Look at it. It's fantastic. You should just come and stay. It's really lovely. And what would you think it would have been advertised as? What would he tout as the benefits of moving to this town? One would be, of course, that everybody will say it has great weather. We're at an elevation. You know, it's, a lo it's lovely weather compared to the, every other land around it. We are just doing wonderful. So yes. that, that is one. Then he would have Trade. said... Huh, trade. Other, nobody was going to be uh, attracted by the weather. They were like, boss, where's the money? Where yeah. can we have good trade? So he said trade is also very good. And he must have said, you know, 24-7 security. There's a strong mud wall around it. We have guards at each of the eight gates. So that's a good thing. And he might have said that we yeah. have water. <laughs> so where was this water coming from? So to the northwest, at the northwest corner of his fort town, was a lake or a tank called the Dharmambudi tank. And it was full of water and it would supply his um, city. And the Dharmambudi tank existed till the beginning of the 20th century. I mean, until the, 20, until the 1930s even, that lake was there. But today it's no longer there. And I'll tell you sort of the, the approximate location of the Dharmambudi tank. And then you can think and tell me what it has been replaced by. So the, huh? 
ബംഗളൂരുപേറ്റെ <laughs> i've got people uh, a separate enclave for salt manufacturers upparpete <coughs> i've got uh, people one one whole separate section for uh, um, postmen for post and telegraph that was not telegraph post which is called anchepete so i have all these places already made and there's enough room for bullock cart parking i've seen to that also so come and see <coughs> so people came lot of weavers and once they came they loved it so much everything that he said was true plus they found benefits that they hadn't been <coughs> told about including the <coughs> sweetness of the people <laughs> yeah yeah thank you jay <laughs> <laughs> including the sweetness of the native people who welcomed them and made them feel at home so i love telling this story about bengaluru and the other story about the boiled beans because they i think they contain in them the germ of what makes bangalore so special that it's generosity to outsiders we have always opened our hearts if you see the even the location of bangalore is so weird after the um state reorganization act came in in 1956 and the new state borders were drawn we are sort of stuck in a corner of karnataka right we are closer to tamil nadu kerala and andhra you can go to lepakshi and come you can go to hosur and come you can go to uh, somewhere in kerala and come faster than you can go to bijapur from mm-hmm. bangalore so it's a very strange location but because of that reason it has always been a place whose gates have been open the gates that kempegowda threw open in 1537 are yet to shut people are still pouring in when they come in they love it they do not leave and in while we might complain and crib about all the uh, you know water is everything's becoming expensive all these people these immigrants from outside and they're all speaking hindi and they're all you know they they they're taking away the, the basic character of bangalore is gone all this we complain but we have to also admit that bangalore they have enriched the city by their presence in many ways and um, in fact that the, the reason bangalore has become such a vibrant city of the future is because new ideas are constantly pouring in and we are able to welcome them and absorb them assimilate them and somehow what bangalore ends up doing to newcomers also is making them bangalorean in the sense they come with all their chips on their shoulders and oh we're going to talk to people like this we're going to talk to cabbies like this we will never learn the language they will never learn the language leave that but everything and they'll come with all these chips on their shoulders but sooner or later they find them being smoothened yes. off and they also settle into this wonderful laid backness that is bangalore and they also lose their tempers and their tantrums and they they give up their jobs they take voluntary they take pottery classes they start they join some ngo they want you know this this just happens to people who come to bangalore and this is the <clears throat> how did we get this not only from i think we got it in our genes not only from the wonderful vijayanagar empire but more recently from the wonderful maharajas of mysore the later maharajas of mysore were such liberal large hearted people who were able to balance in themselves a very western outlook and a very indian grounding rootedness and that is what they managed to send down that's what has percolated down to the people of the old mysore state um you know like jayacham rajendra wadeer was a he was going to be a concert pianist if his dad and uncle hadn't died and he had to come back at the age of 21 to take over he was training under rahmaninov he would have become a great concert pianist in europe that was his destiny he thought 
but he had to come off at 21 and join and become a king. And before he was 27, the party was over, 1947. He took over in 1940, 1947, it was over. And then he went back to, and during that time, it must have been so stressful, the poor man. He wrote so many kritis in Sanskrit in honor of Chamundi, and they have become uh, part of the repertoire of Carnatic musicians who sing today. They sing these kritis. So that much Indianness and this whole scientific liberal outlook, they would celebrate Beethoven's 200th birthday in Bangalore and also have uh, Chamundi Puja over there in Mysore. So they were able to, you know, uh, nice. balance, balance all these two things. And that didn't come from Jaya Chamrajandra. It, it is an old history of that. His uncle, Krishna Rajavadir IV, who was Nalvadi Krishna Rajavadir, one of the greatest kings of uh, the Mysore state. He, his father, Chamrajandra Vadir X, he came to power in 1881. Okay, And Chamrajandra, 1881, so long ago, what did he do? One of the first things, if, apart from so many other wonderful things that happened during his reign, he set up a house of representatives of the people. He was making his, I mean, imagine a king setting up like a democratic institution, like a house of representatives of the people. But he did. He said, I need you to advise me. I'm not like some dictatorial king sitting here. Okay, that was Chamarajandra Bodhi at the 10th. He took the throne at 18, was dead by 31. Very sadly, of he caught diphtheria in Calcutta, he died. His son, Krishnaraja Vodir, this one, the Nalvadi Krishnaraja, was only 10 when his father died. His mother was only 20, 28 something. Krishnaraja, uh, I mean, Jai Chamra, uh, what's his name? Chamaraja Vodir's wife, uh, uh, Vani Vilas, she was only some 25, 28 or something. She'd already had five children. Krishnaraja was her oldest. Now what to do? He, he cannot become king. He needs a regent. So she said, I will be regent. Despite her grief, despite all her responsibilities, her children, she became the regent. And she could only have the courage to do this because of the amazing divans of Mysore. We had amazing divans also, prime ministers. And the divan at that time was Sheshadri Ayer. So Vani Vilas and Sheshadri Ayer together brought so much glory and wealth and and uh, wonderful things to Bangalore, like including the Indian Institute of Science that was signed during that time. The Victoria Hospital, the Free Hospital, and next to that, the Vani Villas, named after the two queens, yes. the two queens. Victoria was in England and uh, Vani Villas was Mysore, and both were free hospitals open to the public. Then they also, Sheshadri have set up the uh, Simla Samudram hydroelectric project, which brought electricity to us. All this in the absence of the king who had died under the regency, okay? And uh, because of that, in 1902, uh, Karnataka got electric power, hydroelectric power, and the king put out a tender, a global tender. We have this, uh, we have these waterfalls, there's a lot of power there, and we need to extract electricity from there for what? Why did they need electricity? They needed electricity because in Kolar, gold had been discovered. The mines were among the deepest in the world, the Kolar gold fields mines, and you needed electricity to extract that gold from deep inside the mines to the top. And who was the man who was in charge, who had by chance, he knew he had heard some whisper to the ground that there was some gold there, and he'd gone and bought off all that land, took a contract from the... Um, king saying that from the king of Mysore, Maharaja, saying, I have I have all the rights to everything that is mined there. And he went there and but he then discovered that, oh, without electricity, he can't do very much. And he sold off his part of the thing. But then he had, he had already shown that there was gold there. So he sold it to a big corporation. And that corporation got after the Maharaja saying, we need power, we need power. And that's why electricity. But where is Kolar to the northeast of Bangalore? Where is the power generation, Shivana Samudram near Mysore, southwest of Bangalore? Okay, very far away. But the power, so they put out a global tender and which company won the tender? General Electric, which was the company that Thomas Edison had founded himself. Okay, and they won the contract, the American company 
they came here, they set up the hydroelectric project and wires, electric wires were drawn from the southwest of Bangalore to the northeast of Bangalore, the longest power transmission lines in the world at that time. And this was Asia's largest hydroelectric project at that time. And Bangalore, as always, location, 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 it happened to be in the right place at the right time. Those transmission wires had to go via Bangalore. If you're going from the north, uh, from the southwest to the northeast, you had to cross Bangalore. Bangalore is in the way, so excess power came to Bangalore. 1905, Bangalore was electrified. Earlier than so many cities in India and Asia. Okay, one of the first. And all this because of Sheshadri Ayer and the Queen. And then Krishnaraja, what are you growing up in this kind of environment <clears throat> where science was prominent, education was education for girls in Mysore, in the kingdom of Mysore, education was paramount. And not just any education, but education for girls, including our Mr. Rice, Reverend Rice. He had set up the first school for girls, Mitralaya Girls High School. And all, they're all part of the missionary school. Yes, yes, right. <laughs> but the king also encouraged it. And, uh, and English education for girls, not just. And this was a time when princely states in India, other princely states in other mm -hmm. parts of India had no such thing going on. It was all about the king, king, king here. Chamaraja was setting up House of Representatives. Our uh, Krishnaraja Vadiya took over. He said he made it bicameral. House of Elders, House of Representatives, which became almost like an actual democracy. He was outsourcing his job to the people. I mean, imagine how secure you must be to do that. Krishnaraja Vadiya did a bunch of wonderful things. And then he, uh, he actually ruled for a longish time. Uh, 1901 to 1940. So... That was a, quite a long reign for my for, for the Bodier family. Most were very short. They died very young. He managed to hang around for a bit. But when he died, Jaya Chamarajendra came in. And correctly, right, in order, uh, he had to give up to an actual democracy. Right? So when that when India became free, you remember that whole story of Mr. Patel, Vallabhai Patel, going from, that we had some over 500 princely states whose signatures were needed who all had to agree to become part of the Indian constitution, the Indian state. And many of them kicked up quite a fuss or took their time. Who was the first king to sign the instrument of accession? Jaya Chamarajendra Vadir. And he made such a wonderful speech. He said, if the time has come, uh, uh, you know, then I'm, I do it with, people are calling it a sacrifice. What sacrifice? This means my people, the kings have fulfilled their job of making the people fit to rule themselves. So I sign this with great joy. If we have done our work, it's time for us to go into the background now. So that's the kind of kings we had, you know, amazing. But let us dwell now, we're almost out of time. So I'm going to dwell just for five, 10 minutes on the amazing British people. Let's not forget them. Again, Bangalore, I feel Bangalore has very good karma. You know, we've always had like really good, even the British people were very good, the ones who served here. So what happened? In the middle, we forgot that whole Tipu Sultan Hyder Ali episode that went on for 40 years. And while it's now fashionable and trendy to say Tipu Sultan was that kind, was a horrible guy and this, that fundamentalist, all that. If you look at history, Hyder and Tipu were the bulwark. They managed to stave off the British like nobody else did in the rest of India. They defeated the mighty British army, not once, but twice in the Anglo-Mysore war. So they formed like a formidable defense against the British for a long time, in, at least in Karnataka, mm -hmm. in the southern, in the south. So Hyder Ali uh, had to take over Mysore, sort of. It almost came to that because the king was quite incompetent at that time, the Mysore king. He, takes, so he was a commander-in-chief of the army. He was very powerful already. So and and he and the Mysore treasury was being looted by all kinds of people because the king had no control. So Hyder Ali takes over and rules for for everybody obeys him because he is the commander in chief of the army in any case, and he manages to rule. Uh, 19, 1760 to 1782, he dies in 1782 in the middle of the Second Anglo-Mysore War, and everyone thinks, ah, okay, Hyder Ali is a great strategist and fantastic soldier. His son won't be able to manage now because he dies in the middle of the Second Anglo-Mysore War. The war is not over yet. And, uh, and not from wounds sustained in battle. 
he dies from what is described as a carbuncle on his back, which we think must have been a cancerous tumor. So he dies of cancer and his son Tipu is away fighting somewhere far away. Tipu was never trained to be a soldier. That was not was supposed to be his destiny. He was not the oldest son. He was just one of the many sons. He had been born after Haider and, <clears throat> Haider and his wife had prayed to a Muslim saint called Tipu Mastan Olia. And so then Tipu had been born, named after the saint. And Haider had promised that I will give him to the clergy. I will give him to the priesthood. And so he was trained as a, early education was all in uh, the Quran and stuff mm -hmm. like that, religious education only. Until our Hyderali discovers that his oldest son has epilepsy, the one he was hoping would take over after him. Then the second son is not so, not so good at strategy, uh, just not such a great fighter. And then Hyder, Hyder suddenly wakes up and says, excuse me, what, what is this child doing? Only filling his head with religious stuff. He's still my son and he needs to be given some martial training. And he pulls him out and discovers that this boy, while he's not, as strategically good as his dad has the courage of a tiger when he fights. And so he becomes um, Haider's nominated heir. And once his father, and everybody thinks, ah, but he's a prayerful guy and he's very pious and all. I don't think he has the dumb to actually finish this war to any effect, but he does. Even the second anglo Mysore Tipu comes back and again forces the British. He dictates the treaty to the British. Okay, and then his PR is much better than anybody else's, than his dad's for sure. He self he calls himself the Tiger of Mysore, strikes strikes terror into British hearts in in the East India Company's offices on Leadenhall Street. Uh, you know he's he's really called a terror, and British mothers are telling their children, if you don't drink your milk, Tipu will come and get you. <laughs> that kind of bogeyman status, and uh, he, he he allies with the French like his dad did. And he, he gets the French to build him, French engineers build him a um, mechanical tiger, life-size mechanical tiger, mauling an Englishman. Oh. Englishman lying on his back and this tiger. And it's a pipe organ. And if you, if, you, if you wind it up, the tiger roars and the soldier screams in oh. pain. And this is the kind of toy that his children play with in full view of British officers who are in his dungeons in Mysore and Bangalore. And those British officers are being guarded by live tigers at night, mm -hmm. live hungry tigers that Tipu has as pets. He has tiger stripes on his flag. He has tiger claws on his, uh, uh, you know, on his, um, he wears them as rings to eviscerate the enemy. He has uh, tiger heads in gold eyes, eyes, rubies set as their eyes <clears throat> on his octagonal throne. All this stuff, okay, much, much PR is done. And uh, he's regarded as a very, very worthy enemy for the British. Unfortunately, in the Third Anglo-Mysore War, he loses. Why? Because the, think of the year. It happened in 1791. Okay. And our Tipu had uh, friendships with the French. Right? Now, let me test your world history a little. What happened in 1789? Important world event. Revolution. French Revolution, that's right. So the French Revolution happened, which meant that Louis XVI was ousted and uh, he and his wife Marie Antoinette, they lost their heads. So when, when there was no leader, the French army everywhere else in the world was in disarray and they did not help Tipu Sultan. And uh, the person in charge of India at that time was a man called Cornwallis. And he had just come to, who was Cornwallis? Let's go a little further back into history. 1775, which important world event? I can't hear you, Jaya. You're me. Chip Mutiny or something like that? Waterloo? No. Huh? Is it Waterloo? Not Waterloo yet, Mr. Vasudevan. Uh, 1775. American Revolution, Declaration of Independence in America. Okay, so that happens in 1775. And the war breaks out between the uh, American colonists and their masters. We are the British uh, people. The British and Americans begin to fight. Americans take the help of the French. Benjamin Franklin goes to the court of the emperor. Uh, Louis XVI gets help, etc. And 1781, the final battle is fought. And America wins. 
it happens uh, in a little town called georgetown and uh, who wins who is the american general who wins there's only one he became the first president of america washington washington, washington. washington. so washington wins and who was the english general who lost that war he was cornwallis nobody in history nobody remembers the name of the vanquished only mm. the victor okay so cornwallis loses his reputation is in tatters he has lost america to the french right basically the english and french were fighting all over the world so mm. everybody else who were allies with the french are just by the way but Thank you.